Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for providing my every need and giving me the strength to make it through. I pray that I listen for your voice today and cast all my worries on you. Help me to see others through your eyes and notice the opportunities you have for me. Let me love others as you do, forgive and let be. Please take away the anxiety and stress that I may trust and rely on you and rest. In every moment of every day, may I open my heart to you and pray, asking you not only to meet my needs, but how I'll serve as the Spirit intercedes. Thank you for being with me, even in my darkest days, and forgiving me for wronging you in so many ways. Help me to pray, for better or worse, but most importantly, to always pray first. Well, it's good to have you here today, whether you're here in Bellingham or you've joined us in our Skagit campus or you're watching online, it's good to have you. And those of you in Florida uh, at the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, we want you to know that we as well as many in the nation have been praying for not only uh, your state but the community and praying that you as the body of Christ there in Florida have um, really practical ways uh, to reach out with the love of Christ and we continue to to lift you up in this horrific tragedy uh, that uh, we've all experienced, but you've uh, more close to home experienced uh, this last week. You know, when you think about things like what we've gone through, I'm so grateful that we have a God that invites us to come to him with everything, whether it's something on a national level, a global level, a family level, or an individual level. And along that line is, as uh, we've talked about, as Pastor Kip just mentioned, we have the prayer wall here and in Skagit, and I don't know if there's just something about the anonymity of being, you know, no names and no faces, um, but the amount of authenticity and rawness of people as they've put their requests down. I, I took about a half dozen this week to be praying for, and just the, the pouring out of, of the hardships and the broken hearts as, you know, someone talked about being in, in, in a marriage that was separated and their family is being destroyed and their heart is broken, and, and just the, to walk into this room and, and some of you sitting here today come in with just heavy, heavy hearts. Another one that I've been praying for this week talked about how there was some abuse that took, ha took place years ago in their childhood, and they have never, ever felt safe with God or with others, and just praying for some healing. Someone else talked about the bitterness that they had in their life that, that caused them to, to push God away and how they don't want that, but it's the reality of their life and just to have these things and that we can pray, that we can pray to God, but we can also pray for each other. And so I want to encourage you as well uh, to pick up some prayer requests from that wall and just continue to, to lift up our brothers and sisters um, this week. You know, the, the um, anchor verse for this entire series and this entire emphasis it's found in Colossians chapter 4 where it says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And this whole concept, especially in times of difficulty, in times of hardships, in times of, of trials, to devote ourselves, is there, there's almost like two ways to look at that. What does it mean to devote ourselves? And part of it might be the, the, the perseverance to continue to pray through, even when it feels like our prayers aren't being answered or they're not being heard or they're, they're not coming through the way that we think they should or when we think we should, but that we would devote ourselves but there's also this kind of almost this passion side that we would devote ourselves, that we would be really intent about this, that we would be really engaged with this, devote ourselves being watchful, knowing that God does hear, he does care, and to see what he's going to do, and to be grateful, to be thankful. 
And no matter what our circumstances, we have things that we can be thankful for. The fact that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus does know that there will come a day when Jesus will set all things right and that we can have peace, that Jesus is our source of healing, he's our source of comfort, and even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have his presence with us. We can fear no evil because he's with us. And even when the prayer requests aren't answered, how we think they should be or when they should be or, or at all, to know that, as he said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I will see you through. And to have that. And I just hope that we as a church continue to grow as people of prayer, people of authenticity, people can encourage one another, and always looking to Jesus. Now, there's a problem sometimes that happens in churches. It can happen in any church. And people and pastors and churches suffer from um, a, a condition it's suffering from uh, HMD. And, and the problem with this suffering with HMD in churches is that on the one hand, it's dishonest. I mean, it's not being true. It's not being authentic. And you suffer with HMD long enough, it can lead to some, some disappointment in life and God and in what you thought. It can lead to discouragement in your walk. It can even destroy a spiritual walk. You may be wondering, what is HMD and am I suffering from it? HMD is Hakuna Matata Disorder. That's what HMD is. It's this delusional uh, disorder that takes place in churches. It's this idiosyncratic belief system that we hold on to and maintain with great uh, firmness, even in the, in the face of contradictory reality. You remember this. You remember it from Lion King. You remember Pumbaa there kind of telling Simba how to live life. Hakuna Matata. It's our problem-free philosophy, which is great if you're a warthog. But in life, sometimes it's not problem-free. But in the church, we almost portray this idea that we just got to come in here and be, as R.E.M. used to sing about, shiny, happy people holding hands. And while I believe that there is joy in the midst of sorrow, this idea that everything's fine, praise Jesus, it's all good, there's no problems, I'm wonderful, I'm always happy, is not reality. And when this disorder comes into the church, it's easy if you look around and say, well, everyone else seems to be having no problems but me, so the Christianity thing doesn't work for me. Or I thought when I gave my life to Jesus, I wasn't going to have problems anymore, and now I have some. Or I've got to go to church and pretend like I don't have problems, even though I do. And thus, we have this inauthentic, fake group of people with this, this syndrome, and we're all singing Hakuna Matata. Maybe you come in today, and you're not singing Hakuna Matata. Maybe it's not a problem-free existence. Maybe there is some deep pains that you... Maybe the song you sing is not from a Disney movie. It's from the book of Psalms. The Psalm of Lament, where in Psalm 33, the Psalm says, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. I'm not singing Hakuna Matata. You know, you read this, you live this. You're singing, some of you are old enough to remember the show Hee Haw. You're singing a hee-haw song. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Oh, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. Oh, anyone remember this at all? If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, like it's not going well. 
It's difficult right now. There are problems. There's this anguish, this hardships in my life, and I'm not going to pretend like everything's wonderful. And usually when we're in these circumstances, when we're in these situations, we go into fix-it mode, we go into solution mode, we try everything. And then when we get to where we say, I've tried everything, all else has failed, I guess I better pray. And what if, what if prayer was our first response, not our last resort? What if when we came into hardships, what if when we came into trial, the first responders in our mind, the first responders in our soul, the first responders in our heart was not panic, but it was like, I better take this to the Lord. I better pray. In the midst of my difficulties, in the midst of my distress, the first thing I'm going to do is pray. The psalmist writes in, 18, in Psalm 18:6, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. And this is what I want to talk about today. The story we're going to talk about today, I believe, is summarized in this verse, even though the story happened probably 100 years before this verse was written. As I I said last week, in this series leading up to Easter, in the Pray First series, every weekend we're going to look at men and women from the Old and New Testament who were prayers. And we're going to look at their prayers because by observing how they prayed, what they prayed about, the circumstances around their prayers, their their perseverance in prayer, I believe it can give us windows into how we can grow as prayers. And so today, we're not going to be looking at David, the psalmist, but we're going to be looking at the life of a woman who, who this summarizes everything we're going to look at in her life today. Her name is Hannah. Some of you are familiar with her story. And the name Hannah actually translated means favor or grace. And you would think with a name like that, with, you know, the favor of God, the grace of God, that she must have lived a charmed life, a wonderful life. And and I will say this, she was an incredible woman. One of the commentaries that I read about Hannah said this about her life. I love how poetic this is. Said that her life was, if I can remember this right, was the harp note of the immortal triumph of patience. I don't even know what that means, but it sure is picturesque. It's beautiful. I wish I could talk that way. That her, her, her life was like this harp note that, that's just this beautiful, ringing, uh, resonating tone. And while it may be the case, she was no stranger to pain and difficulty and hardship and frustration and disappointment. In fact, she, uh, as we'll see, her distress was extremely deep. And so today we're going to look at her life. And whilst many of you are familiar with her life and even this story, it's amazing that her life consists of uh, about one, maybe one and a half chapters in all of Scripture. We're going to be looking in the book of 1 Samuel. If you have the old school Bible, it's about a quarter of the way in from the beginning. If you have the new school Bible, type in the number one in Samuel. It'll take you there. But we're going to look in 1 Samuel chapter one and a little bit of chapter two, but primarily chapter one. And it starts off, this story starts off actually talking about her husband, Elkanah. Uh, and Elkanah, it starts off with his lineage and history and all that's very important, but it's not germane to our story today, so we won't spend any time with that. Then it talks about his marital arrangement that he found himself in, or he chose to be in. And his marital arrangement was not uncommon uh, for his time in his era. It was very customary in the culture that he lived. It was not what God had intended. It was not God's original plan. God's original plan is one man and one woman. And it's almost like you see in the Old Testament like this permissive will of God, like, okay, 
but I'm telling you, it's going to be fraught with difficulties. This is where we pick up with this marital arrangement in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. He had two wives, to which some of you right now are saying, what an idiot. I mean, <laughs> okay. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other was Penina. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's what we're going to call her today. Penina, like a bread sandwich or something, or a, a pariah or piranha, but it's Penina. Now, as you know, in Scripture, sometimes the order of a list is important. So the fact that Hannah is listed before Penina might mean that she was older than Penina, and I think you could probably build a, a fairly decent case for that. It might mean that he married Hannah first. I think you could pretty, build a pretty significant uh, case for that. It might be about importance and value. And I know that you can build a biblical case for this. Because if you read the whole chapter on your own, you'll see that it says Elkanah loved Hannah. It never says that about Penina. So Hannah is listed first, and then in the next verse, it points out a distinct difference between these ladies, and it switches the order. Penina had children, plural, but Hannah had none. Now, it's possible, this is speculation, but it's possible the reason that Penina is even in this arrangement is that maybe Elkanah and Hannah had been married for years, never able to conceive, and they thought, we remember what Abraham and Sarah did. They brought in a third party. They brought in the handmaiden, Hagar. Maybe we should follow suit. And it is possible that Penina, Pen, oh, this gal, uh, Penina, the only reason she's there is because maybe Elkanah and Hannah were not able to have children, and they said, then I'll marry another one just to keep the, the family line going so that we will have a heritage, we'll have children. Very possible ch case on that one. But here we begin to see the deep, deep heartache and pain and sorrow and misery of Hannah. Because Hannah has no children. And it's interesting that in my life, um, I have some very, very uh, dear and close friends who've experienced this, one being my sister. And going through life unable to have children when it's the great desire of your heart. And most of my friends have come to peace with this, and some are still in the midst of it. But it's just this monthly reminder in the Old Testament, I'm barren. And you can imagine now that Hannah has, month after month, year after year, been met with a reminder that she has no children over and over again, and it just tears her heart apart. In addition to that, in this culture especially, a woman's value was sometimes partly because of motherhood. So now she begins to question her own self-worth. And in this culture, if a woman was barren, it was often believed that it was a curse from God and it was punished because of something she had done or some reason. And so if that's the case, you know that Hannah's probably just continually racking her brain, what have I done? I, well, I, I'm so embarrassed and so ashamed and I don't even know what it is and I've tried to repent and I've tried to think about all the things and for whatever reason I'm being punished. But you can see her heartache. You can see the broken heart that she has. And here she is without children. And then it goes back to Elkanah. Year after year. See, here's the interesting thing. We're only three verses into this story, but he says, no, 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 actually, 
This story's been going on for a lot of years. You're coming in in the middle of the story. Year after year. Something's been happening for a while here. Year after year, this man, Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. So here it is that he and his family go up year after year after year after year, maybe for decades. In the context, I think it would have been probably a couple decades this has been going on. And here he is, a man of God, the spiritual leader of his household, because when he goes up to Shiloh to worship the Lord and to do the sacrifices, he makes sure that his wives and his children go with him. He takes personal responsibility to make sure that his family is in the place of corporate worship regularly. So he takes them up there, and they go to Shiloh. Little side note, just to kind of set the context. We always think about Jerusalem in the temple. But the tabernacle had been in Shiloh for 369 years. The tabernacle, the, the, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the, the meeting place of God where, where God would meet with Moses, and it was a very mobile unit out in the wilderness. When they came into the promised land, it was set up in Shiloh. And that was the place of corporate worship. They would come to Shiloh. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the tent of meeting was. That's where they would come to worship. And for 369 years, the tabernacle stayed there. It wasn't until later when Solomon would build the temple that it would be uh, moved uh, permanently to Jerusalem. So he goes to Shiloh. And there's an interesting thing that takes place, if you read the whole thing, is that every time they go up for this annual tradition, this festival, this feast, there's this rivalry between these two ladies. And I think it's those times when Elkanah says, why did I marry two of them? Because they're getting after each other, especially uh, Penina. The Bible says that she would provoke Hannah, that she would irritate Hannah, that she would gloat about her children, that she would flaunt it in front. This was beyond just being a mean girl. This is cruelty at its deepest level. Here's Hannah, whose heart breaks every single month and has maybe for decades that she doesn't have children. And Panina just puts it in her face. Hey, Hannah, let's go to the tabernacle. Get your kids. Oh, wait, that's right. You don't have any, do you? I better go get all of mine. Very, very cruel. Now, a little side note. Maybe part of this cruelty is because maybe Panina is an unloved wife. Maybe Elkanah only comes to her for one thing, only cares about one thing. She feels like she's just a womb for rent. That's her only existence. But regardless, there's this difficulty that happens. So they go up to the tabernacle. This went on year after year. Again, we're in the middle of a long, long story. So you can read this whole thing in about five minutes, but we're talking about decades, year after year. And when they would go up to Shiloh, this was supposed to be a celebration. This, this was supposed to be a festival. This was supposed to be a joyous moment. This is where they go to, to worship God and, and, and to give sacrifice. This is going to be an amazing thing. And yet this is what happens. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Year after year after year. And maybe the reason it's pointed out here is that maybe Elkanah has seen this and he keeps them separated all throughout the year. It's just when they come together for this worship time that they're brought together. And maybe that's why this happens. But can you imagine Elkanah just going, really? Again? Seriously? I mean, is this necessary? I don't know if you've ever experienced it. No show of hands on this one, okay? If you've ever had a 
a gathering of family and extended family for, let's say, Thanksgiving or Christmas. Something that's supposed to be a celebration, a festival. It's supposed to be a good time. And everybody's coming together. You've got the whole family there. But there's that brother-in-law. There's that one sister. There's that aunt. There's that cousin. And everyone's just kind of waiting. And they're, they're so, the timing, the inappropriateness, the things that they say, and it just brings this tension around the table, and they bring it up, and it's just like everything was going fine until they started asking questions, or they brought up this topic, or they had that sarcastic remark. Hey, I don't know. Don't raise your hands. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. That suddenly everything's different, and everyone kind of loses their appetite. Or maybe it's not at a big gathering. Maybe you had your, your own immediate family around the table for the first time, and who knows how long. There's no soccer games. There's no practices. There's no rehearsals. There's nothing. We're all here. There's a meal that's made. We're all going to have dinner together. This is our family dinner. We've been waiting for this. And something's said, and there's some tension, and something flares, and someone's upset, and they lose their appetite, and they slam down their fork, and they run off to the room. Now, listen, I've raised two teenage girls. I've heard this happens. <laughs> and suddenly... Everyone's got a lump in their throat. Everyone's lost their appetite. It's just an awful situation. That's what happens here, year after year after year. And here's what's interesting. The situation is very desperate for Hannah. But I love the honesty of Scripture. Because in the next Scripture, we see that men, males, have been the same for 3,000 years Men have not grown, have not evolved, they have not been transformed, they've always been clueless. Look at this. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, she's crying, she's weeping, Hannah, why are you weeping? Elkanah, come on, don't ask that now. He tries another angle. Why, uh, why don't you eat? There's good food here in Shiloh. Goes one more. Why, why are you downhearted? What's wrong? Elkanah, okay, you know what's wrong. Don't ask those questions. It doesn't help. You're being so insensitive. You're so clueless. So Elkanah all of a sudden realized that, and remember, he's a man. He goes into fix-it mode. Huh? Honey? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Baby, I got you, babe. Just you and me forever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Just two, you and I. We got tonight, babe. Who needs tomorrow? He's trying everything he can. And she gets up and walks away. She leaves the table and she goes to the tabernacle. And when she gets to the tabernacle, there's Eli, the old priest. He's been there year after year after year. And she goes there and she is heartbroken. It says in verse 10, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. The bitterness of soul. No hakuna matata here. She still doesn't have a kid. This sister wife thing still antagonizes her. It's cruel. Her husband's singing 70 songs to her to try to cheer her up. Bitterness of soul. And she weeps much. Ladies, this isn't just a tear. 
This isn't just a whimper. This is ugly cry, and you know what ugly cry is. Ugly cry is when your face gets all distorted, and the, and the, the sobbing, and the, and, the, and the volume goes up, and even breathing, when you breathe in, it's, and every word is staccato. She said, I can't have kids. And it's like that, and you're crying, and your makeup is a mess, and your mascara is pouring down, and you got snot coming out of your nose, and when you speak, bubbles come out of your mouth, and your eyes are bloodshot, and you're swollen, and your neck is all mottled, and your hair is a mess. The only thing normal on you are your ears. That's ugly cry. You know what I'm talking about? Apparently not. She's got ugly cry going on. But in the midst of it all, she prays to the Lord. Do you think this is the only time this happens? Do you think this is the first time this happened? I think this happened year after year after year at the tabernacle. I think it happened month after month after month in her own tent. And she's in the tabernacle, and she's pouring out her heart, and she's crying. And Eli's there, the priest, the man of God. Maybe he'll bring some comfort. But remember, he's a man. Hannah was praying in her heart. Her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. There we go, another clueless man. Even the man of God is clueless. He thinks she's been to happy hour. This is her darkest hour. And maybe, maybe he's seen her do this before. Maybe he saw her this way the night before. And the night before that, maybe they had been here for a few nights. And maybe he had seen her do this year after year. And he always thought, man, she gets away to Shiloh and just tips it back. And she's always coming in here drunk. And maybe he's always given her a little bit of grace. And maybe he's seen this happen over and over again. And finally he says, that's it. i got to say something. I can't let this go on. And he says to her, how long will you keep getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Mr. Sensitive Shepherd of the flock here. And he's saying, listen, show some decency. If you're going to come to the house of the meeting place of the, of the Lord, at least, at least be sober. And her response, not so, my Lord, Henry replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. Can I just push pause here and give a little side note? In our world and in the church, very often when people are deeply troubled, the first place they go to numb their pain, to cover it up, to deal with it, to cope, to feel good, to self-medicate, is the bottle. Maybe the first place we ought to go is to the Lord. Hannah says, listen, I am in deep distress, but I haven't been drinking. I haven't been pouring another glass. I haven't poured another glass of wine. I haven't poured another beer. I'll tell you what I poured. This is what she says. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. That's what I was doing. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. See, here's one of the great lessons that we can learn from Hannah. Because life isn't always a hakuna matata life. That in our hardships, in our difficulties, we don't put on a face like everything's okay. 
we come before the Lord and we come to him in honesty. We come to him in our brokenness. We come to him with our questions. We come to him. She's not, she's not giving tidy little, you know, clean prayers that were rehearsed and, and written down. This is raw, unfiltered, just straight from the heart, pouring out, pleading with God kind of prayers. God can handle that, you know. And when Eli realizes this, in essence, he agrees with her in prayer. He says, may God you know, grant what you ask. He's not saying he will, but he, he's agreeing with her in prayer. And here's what's interesting. Nothing changes. She still doesn't have children. That sister wife is still cruel. Her husband is still clueless. But the next morning, verse 19, the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. See, no matter what, even when the prayers weren't being answered, even when her heart was just filled with anguish and grief, even when this has been going on year after year and maybe for decades, she continued to pray, she continued to worship, she continued to go to the Lord her God. See, in these kind of situations for us, we will either draw near or push away from God. We will either be drawn closer to our Lord or we will push away. And I don't know why it is that some people in hardships, it just seems to make them to lean deeper into God. And for others, they say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. I don't know why some do that and some don't. But I do know this, it's our choice. And when the pressures of life push on us, and when the hardships of life are pushing up against it, let it push us deeper into the presence of our Father. Let, us put, let it push us deeper into the embrace of the one who loves us most. That's what happened with Hannah. She would continue to go to her father, praying and worshiping. Now, some of you know how this story ends. And we're real quick to say, okay, let's get on, because we like the happy ending. We like to put the bow on the package and say, wow, they lived happily ever after. Not so fast. Because so quickly, we want to just pray, answer. You know, go there, pray, get an ugly cry on, God feels bad for you, he gives you the answer. That's how we want. We want the fast lane, we want the express lane, we want the microwave, we want the nexus pass, we want to get through this quickly. Give us the answer now, God. Slow down. This had been going on for years. Years. And I don't know that it didn't keep going on for years. Because verse 20 starts off saying, in the course of of time. How long? I don't know. Nine months, maybe. Nine years, maybe. We don't know. But in the course of time, after years and years and years, her prayers actually answered. Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now, some of your Bibles have a little asterisk, and Samuel, it'll say, sounds like the Hebrew word, heard of God. That God heard and answered the prayer. That's why she names him Samuel. Now, before we go on any further, I want to tell you a, a, a parallel story to this one. Um, in 2006, I took a group the first time from Cornwall uh, to Israel. I'd never been uh, with a group from, from Cornwall to Israel. And so this agency we met with uh, just hooked me up, connected me with a, a tour guide who was young. He was just getting started. His name was Sam, uh, and we connected really well. Sam's a great guy. He was young. He was single, had a lot of great personality. He was a Christian, had a lot of knowledge, and Sam and I became friends. The next time we went in 2008, uh, 
Sam had gotten married to this gal, Allah, and we got to meet her, and, and she was a wonderful, beautiful uh, young lady. And then we went back, and we have people that go on these trips repeatedly. And so we'd go back, and the question was, Sam, you know, you have a wife, yeah, do you have kids? Or people say, do you guys have kids yet? And Sam would say no. And in 2012, Sam, Allah, good, yeah, do you have kids? No, not yet. Over and over again. And, and Sam wasn't like, you know, saying... Um, all the details, but it was kind of implied. We really want to. 2014, we went back. Sam, how's all that great? You guys have kids? No, we really want to. Well, that year, uh, we had a, a great opportunity to go into a Palestinian area that um, beforehand had, had, had not been open to us. Not because they were afraid of, of getting bombed, but the bus companies didn't want their buses going in there because the Palestinian kids threw rocks and broke windshields, and they were tired of breaking, uh, replacing windshields. So this year we were allowed in. One of the places we went to was Shiloh. And as we went to Shiloh, there was a, a, a place where the tabernacle had been, and there was a man named David. It was a Jewish man. Actually, he was from New York, but he's living in Israel. And he gave us the tour of the area in Shiloh. And as he was telling us all this during the presentation, and we were standing on the, on the, the, the little area where they really honestly believed that the, the, the tabernacle was for 369 years, uh, you know, 3,000 years ago. And at the end of his presentation, he said this story about Hannah. And he said, you know, I'm going to give you some time, and maybe, maybe you want to pray here where the tabernacle used to be. And maybe... Maybe like Hannah, you have some friends who want to have a baby, and maybe you ought to pray for them. And several people from my group, myself included, without making a big deal, without saying anything about it, prayed for Sam and Allah. They'd been married for these years, wanted to have a kid, and hadn't been able to at this point. And there we were, where the tabernacle was, where Hannah was, and we were praying for Sam and Allah, February of 2014. And several people said, hey, I was praying for Sam. I said, yeah, I was too. Some of them told Sam, hey, we were praying for you guys. Okay, it's great. In December that year, Sam sent me a Christmas card with this picture. Now, you do the math. <laughs> February 2014, I'm praying for Sam and Allah. November, nine months later, Maria is born. I am the pastor of fertility. I don't take any credit for that. <laughs> but I texted him this week, and I said, Sam, I'm telling you this story. He says, yes, God is good. And actually, they have a little boy now as well. But you know, when you hear that story of Sam, you hear that story of, of, uh, of Hannah, you think, well, the, well the, the whole point of the story is just keep praying, and then God will answer. And, and that's a sub-point. I think the whole point of the story is this. In the hardships, in the difficulties, in the seasons when the answers aren't coming, Remain faithful in prayer and worshiping God. Continue to seek him, not just for what he can give you, but because of who he is. In chapter 2, Hannah writes this beautiful psalm, this beautiful prayer, this beautiful praise. It's, I mean, it is like, uh, like tantamount to the Magnificat by Mary in Luke chapter 1. In fact, there's a lot of parallels. And in this beautiful psalm that she writes of gratitude and thanksgiving, she writes these words, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Why does she write these words? Because he answered her prayer? Maybe it's because for decades, 
for decades. Her prayers had led her to understand who God was. Her prayers had led her to the God who was the rock, her foundation, even when the rest of the world was falling apart. That he was the one that sustained her. He was the one that she could count on. He was the one that she could always go to. He was the one that never changed. And while he may not have answered that prayer for all those years, there was something greater taking place. And it's to what end? That we would know him better. And maybe it was in her tears and in her sorrow as she came back to the Lord again and again and again. There was a depth of connection and relationship with her father that would not have been had he answered on the first prayer. And maybe God says, in that you will have for all eternity. Here's an interesting thing. Fast forward, you get into Samuel's life. She just wanted a son. Samuel comes along. God has his hand on this young man, speaks to him, speaks through him. He's the judge. He's the priest. He's the prophet. And through this man, Samuel, Israel had been in a pretty dismal state spiritually. Samuel brings about um, religious and national reform. He calls them to repent from their idol worship, and they do. He invites them to return to their God, and they do. He brings about revival in their love for God, and he ushers in the, the, the greatest season of Israel's life as he anoints Saul king and later David king. See, Hannah just wanted a kid, just a son. But God says, I've got something else I'm doing. And if you'll trust me, when the time is right, I'm going to bring about not just a son, but a judge and a priest and a prophet. Psalm 33 says this, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. And in those seasons in our lives, when it seems like God's not answering the prayer, when it seems like he's not coming through, God may be orchestrating a greater purpose. He may be saying, if you'll just trust me, i got some stuff I want. If you could see what I'm doing, if you knew the things that I've got in mind, if you would just hang with me on this one. I am orchestrating something that is more than you could ever imagine, immeasurably more than you could ever hope or dream. You know, Jesus, when he was getting ready to leave, he said to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. Trust in me. You know, some of us were raised in church singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we would not carry everything to God in prayer. So in this psalm that Hannah writes, she throws this line in, for the Lord is a God who knows. He understands. He hears. He sees. And we were told in 1 Peter, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So what's really clear is that our loving Heavenly Father never takes his eyes off of you. Hears every one of your prayers. Catches every tear in a bottle. 
and knows and wants the very best for you. See, some of you right now, you can relate to Hannah because it's been years and it's discouraging and your heart is broken. Follow her example. You just keep pouring yourself out to God. Continue to pray. Continue to worship. Continue to lean into him. In those difficult times, continue to grow in your understanding to know him better and trust him in all of that. See, our God never takes his eyes off of us. He says, don't take your eyes off of me. Trina and our team is going to lead us in a closing song that just fits with this. I'm going to invite you to stand. But the second verse of the song says, far be it from me to not believe even when my eyes can't see. And, and that course is, through it all, my eyes are on you. Some of you need this song because of the season you're in. Let this be your heart cry. cry. Let this be your prayer. And let's sing this together.